So on September 23rd, 1857, uh, Pastor Jeremiah Lampierre was sitting in a room of his church building in a difficult neighborhood in New York City. And outside the room, there was a sign that was posted that said, prayer meeting from 12 to 1 o'clock, stop 5, 10, or 20 minutes, or the whole hour as your time permits. And you see, Jeremiah Lampierre was newer to this area of New York. He had just taken a position as a pastor there, and he was trying to think of ways that he could reach out to the community around him. And so he had tried uh, door-to-door outreach and recruitment. He had tried hosting different community events to to get the community out and passionate for the Lord. Uh, But little fruit was yielded from those things. And so he prayed to God, asking for wisdom, saying, Lord, what would you have me do? And he felt the Lord put it upon his heart uh, that he needed to pray. And so he decided to host a prayer meeting every week from 12 o'clock to 1 o'clock so that the businessmen in the surrounding areas uh, could come and attend on their lunch break. They would come and he, he, he would pray with them, they would pray with him, uh, and, and he was hoping that this would spark a, a passion in the people for the Lord. Well, on that first Wednesday, uh, Lampierre sat there for half an hour all by himself praying to the Lord, uh, but as he was praying... All of a sudden, one man he heard climbing up the stairs and entered into the building, and then another after that, and then another until the point uh, that there were six men there that first Wednesday praying to the Lord. And they decided that they would meet again the following Wednesday, and this time, 20 men showed up. And then the following week, 40 people showed up to pray. And eventually... They had to change locations because of the number of people present was too large. And they also realized that praying once a week was not enough. And so they changed the prayer meeting to daily. And you had hundreds of men and women gathered together praying for repentance and revival. And that is exactly what happened. Revival broke out over all of the U.S. Um, I was reading up on this revival and they think, about a million people came to the Lord, and it all started with this prayer meeting. About a million people who were members in churches at that time realized that they weren't actually believers and came to the Lord. And it was known as the, the businessman's revival or the great prayer meeting revival, where, where many came to faith. And it all started with people seeking the Lord in prayer. And now this isn't something uh, that is new. Prayer is, an, is, is not some innovative strategy for church growth that was discovered in the 1800s. And we see it all through the book of Acts. Prayer always precedes the mighty working of God. Prayer always precedes the mighty working of God. Listen to some of these examples. In Acts 1 verse 14 it says, All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. And then what do we have the very next chapter? Well, in Acts chapter 2, the Spirit comes in power. He preaches the gospel and 3,000 people are saved. Or you have Acts chapter 4. Peter and John are brought before the Sanhedrin for preaching that Christ has risen from the dead. And when they're warned not to preach anymore and released, what's the first thing that they do? 
Well, they have a prayer meeting. And they pray for boldness and strength. And then amazingly, Acts 4 verse 31 says, And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered was shaken. And they were filled all with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now that's just two of the many examples in the book of Acts where the the people of God come together to pray and a mighty work comes as a result of that. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. The, The fourth mark of a healthy church is that it prayerfully seeks God. A healthy church prayerfully seeks God. And you can turn to our passage. It's Matthew chapter 6. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 7 to 13. It's a familiar passage. This is the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer. Matthew chapter 6 verses 7 to 13. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. And so there's going to be two parts of this sermon this morning. The first part is going to look at the necessity of corporate prayer. And the second part is going to look at how we should pray corporately. We're going to look at at the Lord's Prayer and look at at Jesus' instructions for us on how it is we are to actually pray. And so first, the necessity of corporate prayer prayer. Of all the church gatherings, the sad reality of most churches is that the least attended meeting or activity or event is almost always the prayer meeting. Almost always the prayer meeting. And I tried to think to myself, why is that the case? Why, why is it that you know, people will show up to the church potluck, the church barbecue, um, show up to church, which is wonderful, um, Bible study, but why, why not prayer meeting? Why, why do so many people usually not attend? I thought to myself, okay, there's, there's probably a few reasons. Some of them may be more valid than others. Uh, the first one uh, is that the timing or place is, isn't convenient. Timing or place isn't convenient. Maybe you have something scheduled at that time, or um, maybe it's, uh, you have no way of getting there, or it's, it's a little bit too far, and that's why you can't attend. Uh, for that reason. Second, maybe uh, you're afraid that you'll get called on to pray. I know this one is, is more common. Uh, you, you think, if I'm at a prayer meeting, someone's going to ask me to pray, and I'm not really comfortable praying in front of the, the, um, the church. So um, for that reason, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm not going to attend the, the prayer meeting. Now, third, uh, you don't see the need for corporate prayer. Maybe you think to yourself, um, I mean, why do I have to go to some place to pray when I can just pray to the Lord by myself? You know, I have individual prayers I can lift up to the Lord. I don't need corporate uh, prayer. Fourth, prayer meetings are boring. And when people pray, there's, there's no passion or there's no life or 
we spend time thinking about and praying about someone's second cousin's uh, liver surgery or something like that. It's, there's no, there's no uh, life when I show up to these things. It's just a box that needs to be checked off. And then fifth, uh, and finally, you don't actually believe in the power of prayer. You don't actually believe that your prayers, the prayers of the church, are doing anything or changing anything. And so why would you spend time and energy and the gas money to show up to pray if you don't actually believe it's going to do anything? And now maybe one of these or a couple of these describe your attitude towards corporate prayer. Or maybe I missed one. That's the reason why uh, prayer meetings are, and, and, and corporate prayer is, is not a priority in our lives. And so I want to spend the, the first half then of this sermon explaining that, that that's just not going to work anymore. That, that we cannot put off uh, praying corporately as a church anymore. There is a necessity for the church of God to pray together. It's a mark of a healthy church. And so uh, before I get into that, I want to define what I mean by corporate prayer. So this term corporate, you might immediately be thinking, when I think corporate, I think like businessman or something like that. Um, but corporate means like collectively, together. So corporate praying then is, is prayers offered to God in the hearing of others who agree with and affirm those prayers. I'll say that again. Corporate prayer is prayers offered to God in the hearing of other believers who agree with and affirm those prayers. And so in the Bible, we have individual prayer, a time when we seek the Lord privately. We make our requests and, and petitions and confessions and prayers known to Him uh, who, who uh, is able to, to hear us even when it's just us present with Him. This is the prayer that most of us think about when we think about prayer. And the Bible does talk about this type of prayer. But surprisingly, the Bible talks, I'd say, even more about corporate prayer. A time when people are together and praying together and fasting together and sharing and making their requests known to the Lord and to each other and, and then lifting those up to the Lord. And so take our passage for example. People might often think of this as a structure for individual prayer, which it, it can be. But when Jesus delivers it here, notice the, the pronouns that he's, he's using. He says, our Father. He doesn't say, my Father. He says, um, give us this day, not give me this day. He says, forgive us our debts. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. And so we see here that Jesus is, is implying that when we come and pray to the Lord, this is a communal thing. This is, this is an hour. This is an us, a we thing. We need to pray corporately, and that's what he's teaching us how to do here, how to pray as, as the people of God collectively. And that's not to say that individual prayer is not required of us. It's to say that both individual prayer and corporate prayer are necessary if we desire to see God move. An analogy I like to think of um, is imagine you're playing on a, a sports team and you want that team to succeed. And you need to have both individual practice and team practice. 
You got to say it's basketball. You have to shoot hoops in your driveway at home. You need to make sure that you're eating healthy. You need to make sure that you know, you're getting to sleep on, on, on time. If you have a game the next day, you have to do all these things on the individual end if you want your team to succeed. But then that's not all that there is. You know, you need to go to team practice. You need to, to learn from the others. You need to learn to play with the others. You need to learn what it's like to, to make a shot um, when there's a defender on you. You, know, t- you, you need to, to be able to work with your teammates and come together and form this team that wins basketball games. And that's what our prayer should be like. You know, if, we want to grow as a, if you want to grow as a Christian, if you want to see God move in your life, God move in the, the life of your children, God move in the life of your church and in your community, you need to be, devo- be devoted to both individual and corporate prayer. And so it seems then that, that individual prayer, it's not enough. We have this idea sometimes where it's, you know, if, if it's just me, all I need in my relationship with God is Jesus, my Bible, and that's it because I can, I can pray to Jesus. Um, I don't need other Christians. I don't need the church. I, I have Jesus and my Bible, and that is enough. But, but it's not. It's not. Uh, the, the, Jesus commands us and he gives us the church, and other people to pray with uh, as a gift so that we can grow as believers. And so corporate prayer is necessary, and Jesus uh, commands us to do it. He says, pray then like this, and then he goes on to talk about corporate prayer. And so what I'm saying then is that we need to not be neglecting it, and that's simply for the reason because Jesus has commanded it of us pray like this. But there's also another reason why we cannot be neglecting corporate prayer. And that's because it is the, the channel through which God accomplishes things on this, this, this earth. He accomplishes things through the corporate praying of His people. Now, this isn't directly in our passage, but Jesus and other teachings on prayer will say things like, ask and you will receive. Or if, if you have faith, you can move this mountain or be, and, and, and say to it, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and that is what will happen. Or he'll say, whatever you ask in my name, it will be done. Now think on some of those things for a second. Through prayer, we are able to petition the God of the universe to do the miraculous in this world. I think the story of, of Peter in Acts 12 explains this very well. Herod was acting in violence against the church. He's, he's rounding up certain people in the church. He actually beheaded James, and when he saw that that pleased the people, he says, okay, I'm going to take Peter. I'm going to do the same thing and have the people on my side. And so Peter is, is placed in prison. They're planning on killing him. And then it says in Acts 12, verse 5, so Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. And then what happens? An angel of the Lord is sent into the prison. He loosens Peter's chains. He leads him. And it says Peter is chained up, sleeping beside two guards. And the angel comes in, loosens his chains, leads him out past the guards. Peter is free, walking around in the streets, goes and knocks on a, on a door where he knows Christians are. And what are they doing at that moment? They're having a prayer meeting in Mary's house. And so 
the workings of God are directly related to the praying of his people. And that same power still exists today. God still works through the praying of his people. God still does the miraculous to advance his kingdom. Now, God, of course, is is free to do as he pleases with his church. But why should we expect him to do anything magnificent or marvelous if we're not going to gather together in prayer to seek him and ask him to do those things? Corporate prayers is necessary for us as a church. Now, a question then that we need to ask ourselves and reflect on, on ourselves is, do you think that our church reflects a people who believe in the power of corporate prayer? Do we believe it is necessary? Or are, are we failing? Or are we succeeding in this area? And Ari mentioned earlier that our church has a lot of strengths. We, we preach the Word of God. We, um, we have a, a strong community. We've, we, we had uh, a stance on COVID where we weren't going to sacrifice um, the gathering of the saints um, in light of the government's oppression. But is prayer something that is a strength of our, of our church? I don't think so. I th- I know, or at least in my life, I know that I've, I've failed in this area, that I've, I've failed to lead our church um, to, to foster this idea of corporate prayer. And so uh, I ask for your forgiveness um, for that, and I've, I've dealt with that with the Lord. And so now I think we need to ask, how can we change that going forward? You know, what can we do so that in our hearts we recognize the necessity of prayer and that we not only recognize it, but we actually start moving uh, towards that. And so first, I think corporate prayer needs to be a primary part of the worship service. It needs to be a primary part of the worship service. You might have noticed I prayed a little bit longer uh, today because the Lord had been putting it upon my heart that corporate prayer is essential to the worship of God. It's one of the things that we are called to do. We see it in the early church and we see it commanded of us. And so we can have this temptation to see prayer as a transition. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray so that uh, after we've sung our song, so that the worship team has time to get off the stage. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray before I come up and preach so it's not you know, an awkward transition from the Old Testament reading to the preaching of the Word. You know, prayer is not just a transition. Prayer is, is vital to the worship of God in the corporate gathering. And so we need to uh, make sure that that is a, is a, um, a central aspect of when we come together to worship. Now, corporate prayer in the worship service doesn't necessarily mean that everybody in the congregation is speaking the prayers. Remember the definition of corporate praying. Corporate praying is prayers offered to God in the hearing of other believers who agree with and affirm those prayers. And so, to practice corporate prayer more doesn't mean that everyone has to come up and say a prayer. Uh, what it means is that as the person is speaking, you, know, you are lifting up those prayers as well with them. You're not letting your mind wander. You're not thinking, wow, this is a long prayer. When's he going to be done? You're not thinking... Um, you're focusing and you in your own spirit are lifting up those prayers as well to the Lord. And now, this might make some of you feel a little bit uncomfortable, but I find um, one way that I engage myself 
uh, in corporate prayer, when others are praying, is I'll say things like, yes, Lord, or, or praise the Lord, or amen, or, or praise God. Like, when, when we pray, you're, you, if you're not the one speaking, you're still involved in the prayer. And you are, you are still uh, affirming and agreeing with those things that are being prayed. That's your particip- participation in it. And so that's the, the first way I think we can grow as a church, making prayer central to our, our worship gatherings. A second way that we can grow in corporate prayer uh, is, is in times when we come together to pray, like in, in small groups. Uh, now, if you know me, I'm a, I'm a big fan of small groups, and that's partly because they allow us to be obedient to this command to pray together. And we set aside a time where, where people can, can lay out their burdens and their struggles and their, their praises and their requests to the Lord, and then we collectively lift those up to God together. And so if you're not in a small group or if you, um, you know, think it's, it's not really something that's very important, it is, it is important. It's a way where you can pray with the people of God, study the Word of God with the people of God, uh, and be obedient to Christ's command. And then finally, uh, we can grow in corporate prayer through prayer meetings. The prayer meeting is not, you know, prescribed for us in the Bible. It doesn't say, like, thou shalt have Wednesday night prayer meetings. But we do see that the early church, in, in the early church setting, they would have prayer meetings all the time. In Acts 12, verse 12, after Peter is, is released from, from prison, we, re- we read that many people were gathered in Mary's house specifically for the purpose of praying together. Now, this is a, a prayer meeting, a scheduled gathering where the needs of the church are lifted up. And so going forward, that's something uh, that we are going to, to start doing again. I've, I've neglected that, um, the prayer meetings. Uh, and so I want to also try and work out something that works for us as a, as a church. Um, you know, if Sunday nights don't work, um, they, they didn't work the greatest for us, um, then we won't do Sunday nights. Um, or if we, instead of uh, a lot of our small groups meet on Wednesday, we could take one Wednesday off and then the, the church all comes together to pray on that Wednesday instead of um, meeting for small group. I think moving forward with being intentional about gathering corporately to pray uh, is a necessary step that we need to take. And so that then is the, the first part of the sermon. Corporate prayer is, is necessary and we cannot neglect it any longer if we want to be a, a, a biblical and healthy church and see the Lord work and move in our, in our own lives and in the lives of those around us. So now moving on to the, the second half. You might say, okay, I'm convinced that corporate prayer is necessary. I need to be gathering to pray. But what does that look like? How, how, how do I pray? How do we pray corporately to the Lord? And for this, what better place to look than the Lord's Prayer. You'll know in, in, in the Gospel of Luke, which parallels the Gospel of Matthew, uh, Jesus gives the Lord's Prayer after the disciples ask him a question. Does anybody know the question? He says, they say, Lord, teach us how to pray. Lord, teach us how to pray just as John taught his disciples. And then Jesus then proceeds to give them the Lord's Prayer. And so if we're asking this question, how should we pray, Lord, teach us to pray, what better place than the Lord's Prayer? And we're going to spend then the remainder of our time studying kind of this how-to 
uh, manual for us to pray. And I broke it down uh, into four elements that should be present in our corporate prayer. Now, not every single prayer needs to contain every single element, though that's totally fine and and even desirable. But when we do gather to pray, uh, all of these elements should be touched upon. All of them should be should be hit. And so uh, I made them all start with R to make it easy for you guys to remember. Um, when you're gathering with other believers, you can think, okay, I got to pray for all of these. Uh, and, and so these are the four, four R's of corporate prayer. Uh, we recognize, we realign, we request, and we repent. We recognize, realign, request, and repent. And so first, uh, we recognize. We recognize who it is that we are praying to. Look at verse 9 of our passage. He says, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. See, in every interaction you have uh, in your life, one of the main things you need to do is you need to recognize who it is that you're speaking to. If you're speaking to, you'd speak to a child on on issues of the gospel differently than you would speak to a theology professor. You'd speak to an a unbeliever on certain things different than you may speak to a believer. It's important to recognize who it is that you are speaking to. And the same is true with our prayers. We need to recognize who this God is that we are speaking to, and that's going to determine the things that we are able to ask of Him, the, the manner in which we we speak with him. And the first thing that Jesus tells us to recognize is that God is our Father. God is our Father. So when we pray, we're not praying to some universal, abstract, impersonal, distant, controlling power of the universe, you know, waiting to strike you dead the moment you, you say something wrong in your prayer or you ask for the wrong thing. No, we're speaking to a, a personal, compassionate, uh, someone who is, who is eager to listen to us, who is intimately in relationship with us, who is, who is our very Father, the Bible calls Him. Now, some of you may have, have tainted images of what a, what a Father is, and when you hear this term that God is like our Father, it doesn't necessarily like, bring you any joy. Um, because maybe your father was you know, abusive to you, or maybe your father uh, had abandoned you, or maybe uh, your father was just distant. He never really had much of a relationship with you. But I want to encourage you that, that God, he's not like that. God is, is not like that. God only and always does what is good for his children. God is only loving and never hating to his children. God is, God is extending infinite grace and mercy to his children. And God delights. He delights in you if you are a child of God. And it, it brings him joy to give good gifts to his children. And so when we, when we come to God in prayer, we recognize that that is who he is, that he is our, our father who loves us and who wants us to come to him. He's not annoyed or bothered by us when we seek Him in prayer. But that's not all that we recognize. So we recognize that He is our 
our Father. But second, we, also, we must also recognize that, we, that He is our Father who is in heaven. Jesus says, our Father in heaven. And saying this, Jesus is not meaning that, that the Father, He's limited to heaven. Like, God is in heaven, and that's where He stays. You know, this, this idea of, of Him being in heaven is that He is seated on, on His throne in heaven. And that He is ruling all of creation as He is seated on that throne, dictating and determining the happenings of the universe. And so when we come to God in prayer, we must recognize this, that He is the sovereign Lord over all things. In fact, that's the very reason why we come to Him in prayer. See, if God were not sovereign, there were, what good would it be to pray to God? If God had to, to yield to some other power, to ask permission of some other power, other standard within the universe, how could we be certain that our prayers are going to be answered? You know, God will never say to us, I wish that I could do that, but I just can't. You know, God will never say, you know, I wish you're, you're eagerly praying for someone to be saved. God is not going to say to them, say to you, I really wish that I could save that person, but I can't. It's outside of my power. I'm unable to do that. No, God is, God is able to do those things. And this gives us hope because what is impossible with man is possible with God. So we recognize that He is our Father. We recognize that He is our Father in heaven. And then finally, we recognize that God is holy. Jesus says, hallowed be your name, or, or let your name be revered. See, God is holy. He is majestic. He is completely unique from all of creation, set apart from all other things that exist in this world. And as a result, He is to be revered and honored for who He is. And our, our prayers need to reflect this view of God. You know, we, don't, we don't talk to God in the same way that we talk with our friends. You know, we can be honest with God, that's for, for sure. The, the Psalms give us liberty to be honest with God, but we still recognize that there, there is a creator and, and creation distinction that is there. You know, we are not on the same level as God. So, so we need to be careful in our words towards Him, being honest, but also being in a way that shows Him reverence and honor when we pray. Hallowed be your name. And so that's the first R of corporate prayers, that we recognize who God is. And, and practically, you know, that would involve us in our prayers speaking words of praise. You know, praising the Lord, recognizing His attributes and, and praising Him for them. Speaking words of thanksgiving and vocal acknowledgments of His character and His works. And so we should be, we should be recognizing who God is in our prayers. Second R of corporate prayer is realign. We realign. We realign our will to God's will. Look at verse 10. He says, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. See, sometimes we can think that prayer is about asking God for things so that our wills are met. That's not what prayer is about. See, in our prayers, we, we seek to realign our wills to the will of God, not the other way around. We're not trying to take God's will 
and bend it to ours. We're trying to take our will and bend it to the Lord's and say, your will be done. And we see this with Jesus. Jesus models us for this in the Garden of Gethsemane. What does he say? Not my will, but your will be done. See, God is not your genie. He's not your genie where you, where you, you come to him and, and then you ask for your things and then he, he gives you all that you, you ask for. A genie is there to serve the interests of the one asking it. The whole purpose of the genie is to advance the, the desires and the agenda of the one who he is bound to. But that's not who God is. God's purpose is is to advance His will, not our will. Which, if we do trust in the goodness of God and the promises of God, if you think about it, that's really the best thing that we can pray for. Now, the prayer, your will be done, it's a hard prayer to pray, but it's also one of the, the safest and the wisest prayers to pray if God is truly in control and working all things for the good of those who love him. And so in prayer, we want to make sure that we're, we're realigning our will to the will of God. Now, the third uh, R of corporate prayer is that we request. So we, we recognize, we realign, and then we request. Look at verse 11. It says, give us this day our daily bread. And so we see here that it's not wrong to ask God for things. You know, sometimes, sometimes we can have this thought lingering in our minds that if, if we continually ask God for things that we're annoying Him or that we're, we're being selfish. Now, if, if that is all that we did, just ask for things from God, then, then yes, that would be selfish. But it's not selfish when you've, when you've done the previous two R's that we talked about. When you've, you've given God the glory and the praise, you've recognized who He is, you've realigned your will to His will, and then you are free to go and request of the Lord, knowing that your requests now, if you've done that, are not to serve your will, but His will. And though it's, and it's also important to notice what it is we ask God for. So we shouldn't just you know, ask God for anything. There are some things that you should not ask God for. There are some things that are going to serve your will and serve no kingdom purpose. And Jesus kind of mentions that a little bit in, in this verse. He says, give us this day our daily bread. Give us this, this day our daily bread. So twice he's, he's stressing this idea of this day or, or daily bread. And so that is that we, we, we ask God not for weekly bread, not for monthly bread, but, but daily bread. And he's, I think, pointing back here to the idea of manna. And so in the Old Testament, you had the people wandering through the wilderness and God gave them daily manna that fell from heaven. And at first, when they didn't really know what was going on with the manna, God had told them, you know, you go and you get your day's ration, and then the Lord is going to provide for you the very next day. Some of them thought, well, why don't I grab, you know, a bunch, store it up in my house, and then I've, I've got tons of bread. There's tons of extra sitting on the ground. And then what happens is that bread ends up spoiling, and God was trying to teach them something. He's trying to teach them that they need to rely upon the Lord daily for his provision. And so I think what Jesus is saying here is we don't pray for all of our wants. We pray for our needs. You know, not, not that, it's, that we can never ask God for what we want. Sometimes when what we want is aligned with his will. 
but the focus of our requests should be on our needs over our wants. Lord, give us you know, just our daily bread, the thing that, that, that we need for this day to continue on. It reminds me of Proverbs chapter 30, verse 8 to 9, where you have a bunch of these wise sayings. And it says, Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, Who is the Lord? See, if we get everything that, that we want, we may no longer come to the Lord as our provider and our sustainer. We might say, I have all of this. Who is the Lord? I don't need the Lord. So that's why Jesus says, pray, give us this day our daily bread. We make our requests known to the Lord, trusting that he will do what is right in granting them or not granting them. And then we move on to our fourth and final R of corporate prayer. And we see that, that that's that we are called to repent. We're called to repent in our prayers. Verse 12 and 13 says, And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. See, when we pray, we set aside a time for repentance. And what that involves, it involves naming the sin that we're repenting of. It involves confessing that sin. It involves asking God to forgive us of that sin. It involves turning away from that sin. And then also asking God to, to lead us away from that sin. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That's what, that's what a repentant prayer entails. Now, I know for me, when I hear that we're called to, to ask God for forgiveness for our sins, an immediate thought that comes to my mind is that I thought that I was already forgiven. I thought Jesus already forgave me on the cross, so why, why do I need to come and still confess my sins and ask for forgiveness? And it's a good question that I devised myself, and it's, and it's true that we have been forgiven of all our sins if we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ. Colossians 2 verse 13 to 14 makes that very clear. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all, all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. That's Colossians 2, verse 13 to 14. God has completely forgiven us all of our trespasses. They have been nailed to the cross if we have placed our faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Every sin, past, present, and future, paid for, washed away by the blood of Christ. We're no longer guilty before God. But then my question still remains. If I'm no longer guilty before God, if I have been completely forgiven, why do I need to ask for forgiveness? Well, it's because sin and forgiveness have both a legal aspect to it as well as a relational aspect to it. You see, in the, in the legal sense where God is sitting as judge of the universe, our sins are completely forgiven. You know, the verdict is not guilty. We stand there righteous because of Christ's death and because of Christ's righteousness that he has given to us. And 
That, that's, that's the legal sense in which God has forgiven us. But there's also a relational sense where God, he relates to us as a father and our sin still has consequences to that relationship. You see, when we sin and continue in that sin by not repenting of it, we put a barrier up between us and God. You know, there's, a, there's a hindrance in our relationship with him. And I mean, we know what that feels like. At least I know what that feels like. Your, your walk with God will never be as intimate as it could be if you have unrepentant sin in your life. I like to think of it like a, a sink drain. I was washing dishes a little bit last night and I was kind of thinking this up. The, the closeness of God is like water that is, is coming out of the faucet and, and the water is, is flowing and when there's no hindrances of sin, the, the water of God's presence just, presence just flows down the drain. And we're like the drain just receiving uh, his intimacy and his presence in our life. You know, your, your time in God's word is a blessing to you. You're, you're walking by the power of the Spirit. Your prayer time is it's undistracted and it's deep and it's consistent with the Lord. Your, your relationships are all seeing the effects of these. You know, that, that water is just flowing. But then the sink gets clogged. And what happens? The water stops flowing. Your God feels distant and far away. Prayer time, it's it's short and it's sporadic. It's, it's not consistent. There's, there's an absence of the fruit of the Spirit in your life. And that's what our sin does. Our sin's like that leftover food that didn't get scraped in the garbage and then comes and, and, and clogs up the sink and prevents that steady flow of water. And if it isn't removed, then what happens? You know, more gunk builds up and even less water gets through. And that's what our, our sin is doing if we continue to walk in it unrepentantly. But the joy is that when we do confess that sin and we do repent of it, it's like pulling that, that satisfying feeling of pulling that gunk out and then the, the, and then the water can flow down the drain again. And we experience once again the intimacy with God. And so that's why it's important for us to, to come to the Lord, ask for forgiveness and repent of our sins. Not because if we fail to confess that that's going to keep us out of the kingdom of heaven. There have been sins that uh, I'm sure that I have committed um, and, 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 I have, and, and that has not been brought to my mind and I have not confessed them. Um, but I think the Lord's blood covers that. But when we do confess, uh, it, it takes away that barrier that inhibits our relationship with him. I think David summarizes it for us well in Psalm 32. You can quickly turn there in your Bible, Psalm 32. He describes what this feeling is like uh, to confess to the Lord. Psalm 32, verse 1 to 5. He said, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, Blessed is the man whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. And then his tone changes and he says, I acknowledge my sin to you. 
and did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely, in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me. You preserve me from trouble, and you surround me with shouts of deliverance. See, when we keep silent, when we aren't confessing our sins to the Lord, we waste away. We waste away. And so that's why it's important that we are confessing and asking for forgiveness. And so how do we practice this type of prayer as a church? You know, it might seem a little bit awkward to to just go and really confess my sins. I think, again, another way is, is in our small groups, in our prayer meetings, in our conversations with other believers. You know, we confess these sins. Even in our public worship meetings, confession and repentance should be a part of our prayers. And know what you're probably thinking, that, that's, that's embarrassing. You know, I don't really want to lay out all of my dirty laundry in front of others, but I have a big secret for you their laundry is just as dirty as yours. Everyone is a sinner. Everyone needs to confess their sins to the Lord. Don't let pride get in the way of confessing your sin to others. Because when we don't, it hinders our relationship with God. And we have that promise for us in the book of James that when we do confess, there is power in that. James 5 verse 16 says, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And so I'd encourage you, maybe this is what you get from the sermon. You know, make confession a regular part of your prayers with others. Start with your family, then do it with your small group. Um, make, make confession an essential part when you come to the Lord. And, and be specific when you confess your sins. Um, we sin in specific ways. We don't sin generally. You know, you don't want to pray to the Lord, uh, Lord, forgive me because I know I'm a sinner and I've sinned today. You know, what you want to do is you want to say, Lord, I confess to you that I was prideful there. I confess to you that I was angry. I confess to you that I wasn't trusting in you. I confess to you that I was not loving and treating my wife the way that I should have. I confess to you that I was gossiping. You know, we don't sin generally. We sin specifically, and so we should also be confessing specifically. J.C. Ryle said it well. He said, what good is it if we tell the doctor that we're ill? And you go to the doctor and you say, hi doctor, I'm sick, and that's all you tell him. No, you need to tell the doctor what it is you're sick with, and then he is able to come and to heal you. And so part of our prayer should be confessing specific sins to others and to the Lord. And so to close, those are the four R's of corporate prayer. We recognize, we realign, we request, and we repent. And if we want to be a faithful church to Christ's commands to pray, our corporate prayer time should model what we've been given, uh, what's been given for us and, and include these things. And so then what are the, the final takeaways for our church? I think it's pretty simple. We need to be a church who models this type of prayer more. And think to yourself, when is the last time that you gathered and prayed with people from the church? 
When is the last time that you confessed your sins and had someone pray for you after you confessed your sins to them? When is the last time you, you set aside time to just pray for the needs of the church and the advancement of the gospel with the people of God? A healthy church prayerfully seeks God, and may the Lord burden us as a church to make that a priority in our lives. Let's pray. Dear Lord, uh, we thank you, God, uh, for this command for us uh, to be a church that prays together. And we know, Lord, that this, this command is not given uh, to, to burden us or to hold us down. But Lord, you and your grace and your goodness give us the gift of prayer that we can come together. Lord, just thinking on that verse in James, the, the prayer of a righteous person has power. The prayer of a righteous person has power, Lord. We want to see you do things in our lives. We want to see your name glorified through the answering of our prayers. And so I pray, God, that you would burden our hearts to make prayer um, essential in our church. Lord, would you strengthen me? I know the problem is not with starting praying. The problem is often with sustaining praying. And so, Lord, as we seek to do these things as a church, give us the, the perseverance to continue on in them. And, Lord, may we see your hand, and may you be glorified as you rightfully deserve to be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.